You're listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. My guest in this episode is David Mosscrop. David is a political theorist and a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication at the University of Ottawa. He studies, writes, and talks about democratic deliberation, political decision-making, and digital media. His first book came out earlier this year, and it's called Too Dumb for Democracy? Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones. He also just started a podcast called Open to Debate with David Muscrop. I got on a Skype call with David to talk about politics, the current ongoing Canadian elections, his new book, and what sort of topics he and his guests will be debating on his podcast. David will be speaking at JLF Toronto on September 28th. Here is my conversation with David Muscrop. I can't remember when I first became interested in politics. I, I can remember in 1995 when I would have been about 10 or 11 watching the results of the Quebec referendum on on sovereignty come in. Mm-hmm. And I can remember watching the country nearly disintegrate. It came within about half a percentage point. And I remember being deeply intrigued by that and by the challenge of Quebec sovereignty and the, and the drive for Quebec sovereignty. And then I sort of became a bit of a smart aleck and, you know, found that channeling some of that through politics was interesting and productive. Uh-huh. And then I just started a cycle of reading about it and that was it. And so when it came time to pick some upper year classes in high school, I chose you know, history, politics, philosophy. And then when it became time to choose an undergraduate degree, I chose political science and it was, that was it. I mean, after that, I, it was just, I was on the path and I had no interest in looking back. And, and from there, I went on to do a master's and a, and a PhD and, and then also became interested in communicating to the public, not just other mm-hmm. academics. And that's how I ended up here. And you're, you've already completed your PhD or is that something that you're yeah. still getting? No, I finished it at the University of British Columbia in political science uh, a few mm-hmm. years ago would have been 2017, I think, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm now doing a, a postdoctoral degree or a postdoctoral position right. fellowship actually, at, at the University, University of, Ottawa. of Ottawa. You're right, right, right. And m- me, uh, people like me, we who are in India who don't know much about Canadian politics, uh, could you give me a little crash course for what is what we share with uh, the Canadian political system, uh, what India shares with it, and what it is uh, very different from, given that we both come from the British parliamentary system. Uh, yeah, so I'm not an expert in, in Indian politics, but I mean, certainly, as you've mentioned, we share the, the tradition of parliamentary democracy. Um, we also share, I think, a tradition of, of having a multi-ethnic state mm-hmm. in which we try to channel a lot of the tensions of multi-ethnicity and a lot of the challenges of regionalism through parliament. And sometimes that manifests itself in, in nationalist movements and nationalist parties. So we've had that, for instance, with uh, the Bloc Québécois, who are a Quebec nationalist party, mm-hmm. who exist, I mean, primarily 
to advocate for the separatism of, of Quebec. And it also results in regional tension between the, the national government and the regional governments. So in, in Canada, the prime minister and the premiers are routinely battle, battling over resources and battling over the direction of the country. Mm. So in that, uh, the fact that both of our countries are, are, are trying to manage that and, and have to some extent done so, I, I think successfully, although there's always challenges, uh, speaks to the fact that parliamentary democracy is one of the better forms of, of government in, in the world. You know, if you look at the top democracies, they're routinely parliamentary. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that that legacy that we share. And arguably, the UK uh, parliamentary system is in such a mess that um, the children of the of the British model might end up performing better than than the British model does itself. Right. And I mean, just coincidentally, uh, last night was um, not only a big debate in in the US for the democratic uh, whole system over there. Uh, there was also some sort of a debate in Canada, right? Last night? <laughs> yeah. There yeah, was. Because so we I feel like you were one of the few people tweeting about it compared to all the people that were tweeting about the other debate, which was happening right across the border from you. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this is a, a classic Canadian problem is that we have about one-tenth of the people of the United States of the population, and we get about you know half that percentage worth of, of, of attention. And so when there's a Canadian event happening at the same time, even plenty of Canadians will pay attention to the American events, not the local one. So we had our second, uh, our first national debate for the current election, the 43rd Canadian general election, which is uh, on to day three uh, on, on the day that we record. And so we'll head to the polls on October 21st. Uh, the, Prime Minister Trudeau didn't attend the debate, which was one of the notable uh, mm. takeaways from the night is that he decided to decline. So it was the Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the New Democrats, uh, Elizabeth May, the leader of the Greens, and Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservatives. And it was a bit of an agenda-setting exercise, which suggests to me that this election in Canada will be about affordability, health care, and climate. So tell me about... The Canadian elections are just, like you said, you know, uh, in October. So it's it's a very short period of time where these people come and talk about their issues and try to get people to basically, you know, pick the person they, they like the most. I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. I've lived in India for about five years. I used to live here before I was, uh, I left India when I was 17. I came back when I was 24. So I already missed the first uh, vote that I could do because we do a, general election for the main uh, prime minister system, the main party every five years. So mm-hmm. I missed the first one and I voted in this one that happened this year and the one that happened before. And we don't even do debates. Like, you know, even like our prime minister won with a giant majority this year, even bigger than what he won last year. And mm-hmm. I want to understand comparatively to Canada where now people are talking about how Trudeau may not win with a majority if, you know, hopefully... People are saying the Liberal Party is going to win, but it may not be with the majority. So can you just walk me through what you think is sure. is in store for people um, over the next you know, five, six weeks? Our elections are typically about five or six weeks. In 2015, they were extraordinarily long and they were 11 weeks, but, but that was unusual. So uh, the, the, we'll run until October 21st. And in 2015, Justin Trudeau, the head of the Liberal Party and now the Prime Minister, 
won with 40%, 39.5% of the popular vote. Mm-hmm. That gave him 170-some seats. Uh, you need 170 for a majority. He had a slightly comfortable majority of near 180. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's fairly typical in Canada for a party to form government with roughly 38 to, say, 40, 41% of the vote. Mm-hmm. And that is enough for a majority of seats. Now, Canada is a multi-party democracy. The Federally, the main parties are the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party, sort of a center party and a center-right party. And then the New Democrats are the, the Labour Party, the, the left party. And then the, there are a few others, the Bloc Québécois, the Separatist Party, the Green Party, which is an environmental party that's sort of having a breakout moment. They all have seats. The Green Party has one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're looking to increase that. The NDP has 41, which was quite high for them although it's looking like they might come back down to earth and, and we'll be lucky to hold on to half that. So the current election is primarily a race between the liberals and the conservatives who are sort of fighting for that 39%, which will be enough to form government. But it'll be a close one. And what happens, um, let's say, you know, it's October 21st. I'm guessing it's just one day of of, poll, of uh polling, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not like, not like India voters. where it takes yeah. like forever. <laughs> Right, yeah. because yeah, yeah. in terms of, of quantity, yeah, Delhi has more people than I think most of Canada does. So yeah, we have thirty-six million, maybe thirty-seven million Canadians. So yeah, we're we're tiny. We have uh, so where I live, Delhi, we call it the national capital region because it has two other cities involved in it, and we have about twenty-five million people living just in the national capital region, which is pretty, yes. I guess, I guess, pretty nuts. Uh, so yeah, let's say. Because this is something that we we almost had happen this year in our election where people were saying that Prime Minister Modi would win but may not have a majority and then pretty much everything he wants to pass uh, will have to will end up being blocked by the other party, which is something that people are, I guess, talking about uh, in this Canadian election as well, that if the Liberal Party wins but they don't win with the majority, anything Trudeau wants to do will just be shut down. Like, how does... How does that work if if they don't come in with a majority? So we typically return majorities in Canada, but every so often we have a minority government. We very we never have a coalition government, mm-hmm. which is a different thing. So the difference is in a coalition government, you bring members of the opposing parties into the cabinet and they form part of the government, right. whereas in a minority, you, they are still outside as opposition members. We've had one coalition government in the history of the country, and that was uh, during the First World War. So there's there's a chance that Justin Trudeau falls short of the majority, in which case he would have to negotiate his legislative agenda on the fly mm-hmm. uh, with other parties. Now, he'd, he would probably be backed by another party that would sign what we call a confidence and supply agreement, which just means a, th- a second party would say, look, we agree with enough of what you're about that we'll support the following things and make sure the government doesn't fall. In exchange, you will give us X, right. Y, and Z. Right. So, and that would likely be the Green Party or the NDP who would play that role. And that, that typically works for two and a half years or so. Uh, history suggests that those minority governments last about that long. So it, it's entirely possible that happens and that he can get some things done, but these minority situations force parties to cooperate a little bit more. Right. 
So uh, now let's uh, actually talk a little bit more in depth about the book that you had come out this year, Too Dumb for Democracy. Question mark. Question I don't think. Mark. Yeah, you're not making a <laughs> you're not making a statement. You're you're asking a question. Why we make bad political decisions and how we can make better ones. So, first of all, without spoiling what you actually give as potential answers in the book and and the more questions you ask in the book, can you give a give us a preview of what you are exploring uh, in the book? Yeah. So I I'm asking the question. You know, can we make good political decisions? And by good, I mean rational and autonomous decisions that are based on facts, that are based on on reasoning, that are based on reasons that you come up with that aren't the product of deception, self or otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that we have the capacity when we develop and exercise it to make good political decisions. But we're routinely discouraged otherwise. We're discouraged to make bad political or we're encouraged to make bad political decisions. Because strategic actors like political parties, uh, third part, certain third parties, uh, political operatives, they don't want us to make good political decisions. They want us to vote for them. They want us to support them. So this is a, an assessment of why we fall short of the ideal of the good citizen decision maker and a map for, for how we can do better. And it's not um, – I'm assuming it's not limited to just the historic history of democracy in Canada you're talking about you're talking about other countries and governments as well in terms of how their oh, voters yeah. have been manipulated and and influenced by by parties and and I'm guessing social media and the internet. Definitely social media and the internet as well. The book I, I've written the book to apply to most of the world's mm-hmm. democracies, uh, contemporary developed democracies. the The fact is that the psychology that that underwrites the book is not quite universal, but pretty close. Uh, it would apply to almost any democracy. So my, when I was writing it, I had the English-speaking democratic world mm-hmm. um, primarily in you know in in mind: the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada. But it really applies to to pretty much every democracy because we we aren't that different ultimately. I mean, psych- mm-hmm. psychologically, we're very very similar, and a lot of the systems in place, especially in parliamentary democracies multi-party parliamentary democracies especially are similar so it's really written for everyone and and i'll I'll add this it's written in what i hope is an accessible way i tried to also write it for uh, a general readership Uh, we have lots of writers who write on democracy who who produce books that nobody can read which Mm -hmm. is always irritating me yeah, I mean, they they would end up, I guess, using language that only other people who study politics would understand, and in that way, yeah. they're pretty much isolating everyone who should be talking about it, but chooses not to because they're like, I don't speak that language. People like exactly. me, exactly, probably, yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's 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 one aspect uh, that I was very I, I was curious about, and, and I wanted to get your opinion on it. Um, this happened in India this year, where. We had, I mean, we have a, we have a huge electorate. We have so many people. I mean, we, the numbers they were quoting were like 900 million people uh, who were eligible to, to vote in the election. And the number after all the voting was done, the number came out that we had 67% voter turnout. Now, huh. that's even better than what we did apparently five years ago. We had 65% in the last election. I wanted to know, uh, based on you know the stuff that you've studied and you talk you talk about, 
what is one of the primary reason or reasons for why voters don't turn up at the polls? So Canada had something similar. We had a, a pretty dismal turnout in 2011. In 2015, we had 68%. This time around, I think it'll go back down a little bit. Uh, people have been trying to figure this out. Scholars have been trying to figure this out for years. What is it that keeps people at home? Is it that they are generally satisfied with the state of things so they don't think it matters? Mm -hmm. Is it that they were never socialized into it so it's not really expected of them so they don't do it? Is it that it's too onerous so they don't bother? It's just too difficult? Um, it's it's a mix of things. So there's no one reason. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people are alienated. Some people think the races aren't competitive, so it doesn't matter. Some people think the stakes are too low. Some people think, well, I just don't care and I have no duty. The the reason I focus on the most, because I find it, it most significant, is alienation. Mm -hmm. That a, a huge swath of voters feel alienated from the process. They just believe that it doesn't matter if they turn out. Now, that doesn't mean they don't care. They're not apathetic. I've, I've never met an apathetic person. You know, if you ask them two or three questions, you find very quickly that they care about this stuff. But they just don't think it matters if they participate. Mm -hmm. So part of addressing that is either structural changes like mandatory voting or finding ways to bring citizens into the political process a bit more because ultimately voting – is significant, but it should be the last thing you do as a citizen, right? It, that Voting is the final stamp that you put on the day after you've participated in political life uh, ahead of that, right? Mm -hmm. So part of addressing the challenge of declining turnout is creating a participatory democracy where people, well, of course they vote because that's just the next thing they do in political life after they've done all of this other stuff. Right. Let's now talk about uh, this new podcast you have, actually, where I think you, you have one episode released last week and you're doing yeah. one every two weeks, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we've just recorded the second. The first was, can democracy survive the Internet? And right. the next one is, can we manage the climate crisis? So it's called Open to Debate with uh, David Moscrop. And I heard the first episode. So I wanted to ask you... What made you want to start this podcast and what are some of the future questions and, and debates that you're hoping to address with the show? I'm politically a progressive. I'm, I'm on the left, but I was inspired by a well-known right-wing figure in the United States who's, who's now deceased, but a, a guy named William F. Buckley, who was an arch conservative. Now, I disagreed with him about almost everything. But what I liked about him was he had a show called Firing Line. Mm -hmm. It ran for an hour and, and later in its its life it ran for 30 minutes. But it was a single show about one topic that ran long form and it was a conversation. And I, I thought, well, that's a great idea. That That's important for public life. And then I started looking around saying, okay, well, where, where does that exist in Canada? And it didn't. There was nothing. And so I started going around to places and saying, look, where would you go if you wanted to listen to one issue, smart people talk about one issue for 45 minutes in a row? And the answer was nowhere. So I thought, okay, well, then I'll create somewhere. And that was that was it. So the podcast came out of that. And so, uh, like I said, episode one was about the internet, episode two about the climate crisis. Uh, episode three is about abolishing prisons, whether we should abolish prisons, uh, which is largely about criminal justice reform and, and, mm -hmm. and penal reform. And then we're going to talk about indigenous sovereignty. We're going to talk about masculinity. We're going to talk about 
the role of the Senate in Canada. We're going to talk about whether it matters who wins elections. Sort of a, that's a, a, a rough sketch of season one. And, and then we'll go back to the drawing board. But the idea mm-hmm. is you have a, a discussion about something that's relevant, that's perhaps even pressing, but mm-hmm. not the bouncing ball of the 24-hour news cycle. So we've got uh, one of the reasons, well, the reason I'm able to get to speak to you is because uh, you're going to be at JLF Toronto. And uh, JLF in India, the main festival that happens every January, it has become quite a popular forum for political and social debates where people from all sides get together and the audience, it's completely free. People come in and they get to hear uh, a lot of thinkers, activists, politicians basically uh, have these big debates. What are you hoping, uh, this is the first time the festival is coming to Toronto, it's been in the, going to the U.S. for a little while. What are you hoping that the festival brings to the city of Toronto and, and to the people? Well, I'm, I'm very excited to attend and I'm, I'm happy to see that, uh, that it has, has crossed shores once again. I think that if we can create more of these public spaces to have these discussions, then we'll be better off. So I'm very much looking forward to, to sitting down and having a, a substantive discussion with, with new, uh, for me, new voices about uh, the future of democracy and the issues that we face. And so I, I think what, what excites me the most is, is different voices in the Canadian space. Um, I love talking to the people I talk to, but it's always nice to add new folks to the roster. It's nice to get new perspectives, uh, to get different sensibilities and different experiences and different pasts up on the stage. I find that to be um, extremely productive, and I always learn a lot, so I'm, I'm very excited. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in association with Teamwork Arts the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ah.